Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. Dr. Alan Campbell did his dissertation on identity in a Messianic congregation. I'd like to read you one story of a Gentile in a Messianic synagogue from his paper, The Non-Conversions of Jews and Gentiles to Messianic Judaism. Interesting title. I found this article on uh, the website messianicgentiles.com. Can we see that on the screen? Thank you, Robert. Uh, which has many helpful resources for non-Jews in the Messianic Jewish space. And it's curated by Rabbi David Rudolph, our former rabbi. Uh, So if you're interested, there's many more uh, resources there. I highly recommend that as uh, um, an academic uh, balanced site because there's a lot of stuff on the internet, right? So, but this one is is tried and true. So let's, let's get into the story. Quote, Elizabeth was born in Anderson, Indiana, the same town associated with the establishing of one of the Church of God denominations. Her father was a pastor in that denomination, which required them to move frequently, often feeling dislocated in faith and place. A comfort for her was music. She sings beautifully. In her disrupted life, at least music was consistent. Elizabeth recalled that in her childhood, she never felt secure with God because she thought him to be quote, loving and caring, but also vindictive. She felt at the time that if she wasn't perfect, she wasn't going to make it into heaven. She often felt despondent as a child and suffered with severe depression during her high school years. Her mother told her that if she was depressed, it was because there was something wrong in her spiritual walk. She recalled, the more I got depressed, the more I would pray. It would be a vicious cycle. Her father taught her that when she had questions about life, she was to look for the answer in the Bible. This she did diligently. However, she discovered that one particular question she had about her Christian life did not jibe with any scriptural mandate, the Sabbath. Her parents became angry at her, persistently inquiring why they worshiped on Sunday as opposed to Saturday. At age 18, this resulted in her being severely punished. Feeling humiliated, she enrolled in Anderson College, but was not happy for she felt the tyranny of perfectionism. She said, I had to be perfect, and if I wasn't perfect, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough for daddy if I wasn't perfect. Elizabeth's insecurity with her father found a parallel in her concept of God. With a soft and hesitant voice, she said, when I was doing well and I was perfect, he loved me. And if I wasn't perfect, I needed more prayer or more spiritual maturity more of this or more of that. I just never really felt like I was good enough, she said. She found a refuge from the psychological torment in her studies. However, within a few semesters, she was severely injured in a car accident, requiring her to quit college. With her face in multiple stitches and her car destroyed, seemingly precluding any immediate independence, she started to plan her suicide. 
However, she was afraid to kill herself because her church had taught her that suicide was murder and that she would go to hell. With no funds after recovery, she decided to join the Navy, though through which she met her future husband, who was an Episcopalian. Together, the newlyweds attended chapel services and Bible studies on base. Once she was out of the Navy, at 30 years of age, Elizabeth gave birth to their first son, and the couple started attending Church of the Nazarene churches. After having moved to a different state, their son developed learning difficulties, and it was suggested that the issue may be a matter of diet. If meat was a potential problem, Elizabeth wanted to know about recipes and such. A friend mentioned that Seventh-day Adventists were vegetarians. Elizabeth was interested, but even more excited to learn that the denomination met on Saturdays. However, after visiting a, an, an SDA church, she felt negative about the experience, recalling this. Quote, I barely made it through the first service. Their doctrines and their preaching and the man who spoke just scared the liver out of me, and I knew I would never go there again. But by then my appetite had been whetted. I knew if there was one denomination that worshiped on Saturday, there had to be more. I fell on my face before the Lord literally when I went home, laid on my bed and said, Lord, I can't worship with these people, but where there's one group that meets on Saturday, there is more. Help me find them. And they found me. Elizabeth was contacted a month later by a representative of a local Messianic congregation that had heard she gave vocal music lessons. The synagogue had a need for someone to work with some of their homeschool children to teach them Jewish songs. Elizabeth was hired and was thrilled to discover there were Jewish people that believed in Yeshua, and moreover, they met on Saturdays. Despite her, her parents' respect and sympathy for the Jewish people, they were extremely angry to learn of Elizabeth's involvement with Messianic Judaism. They asked how she could go back to legalism, worshiping on Saturday and having to earn her salvation. You know what, said Elizabeth with tension in her voice, I never worked harder for my salvation than I was with my parents growing up. Elizabeth resists the temptation of calling herself a Messianic Jew in favor of the more ambiguous declaration, I'm a Messianic Gentile. I asked her what was the greatest challenge of being a Messianic Gentile. Without hesitation, she said, getting your family to understand that you haven't gone off the deep end and trying to make them understand that you are still okay, unquote. There are more stories in this paper, and uh, I found some common threads in these stories. Many of these folks interviewed went through a lot of difficult identity work. They wondered what their role was. They struggled with what it meant to be a non-Jew in a synagogue. Were they Christians? Did they convert to Judaism? What does it mean to be a Jew, and why does that matter? Many of them went through more difficulty uh, in, a, in a more mainstream church, and uh, they were curious, and they were drawn to Hebrew, or the Jewish roots of Yeshua faith, or the Davidic dancing that they saw, or the Jewish festivals like Shabbat and Passover. Some of them struggled with worshiping on Sunday, like Elizabeth. Many wondered whether they had finally found the true biblical faith, the best way to follow Yeshua by keeping his Torah, 
doing what he did and being a part of the Jewish people? This is a question that they had. Many of them had miraculous encounters with God and visions which saved them from some darkness in this world. And then, like Elizabeth, they miraculously found the Messianic synagogue where they became members. And almost all of them experienced difficulty with other family members, parents, siblings, spouses, and children who did not understand what they were doing at a Messianic synagogue. Recently, I have started inviting some folks to share with us from this Bema who are within the world of the Christian church. We've had Andy Redford from the Christian Counseling and Training Center and Pastor Alex Boyd from Living Faith Christian Fellowship share on relational gospeling, which is our theme for this year. Both of these men chose to focus on the importance of unity in the body of Messiah which I believe was orchestrated by God because they both thought about it and prayed about it and talked about it independently. And I think it's an important message for our congregation. Did I agree with every nuance of every word they said? I probably would have said a few things differently, but I'm sure you don't agree with 100% of the things I say on the Bema and, and that's okay. Bottom line is, I appreciated what they shared and the fact that we are showing that we are connected to the church with a big C, that we are part of the body of Messiah. About four years ago, I started having ministry leaders prayer. Many of them are pastors. Uh, and I've been praying with these two men and others regularly for about four years, right there in that room. And I've appreciated their friendship and insights and prayers and humility. Their sermons reminded me that while we affirm Jewish identity here in our community, we need to not elevate. But there is a tension to it. There's a real tension. We're not your average synagogue. We're certainly not your average church. We're a little different. And that's a good thing. And that brings us somehow to this week's Torah portion. You'll just have to trust me on that one, okay? The Parsha is smack in the middle of the Joseph story. Remember, he was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt. He worked for Potiphar until he was wrongly accused, spent a few years in prison, and finally remembered by the cupbearer as being able to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh has a dream about seven fat and skinny cows, and Joseph is able to correctly interpret the dream. No, it's not about switching from whole to skim milk, but rather about the abundance and then the famine that are coming to the land of Egypt for seven years each. Joseph then gives his plan as to how to survive this ordeal and keep everyone in the kingdom and everyone in the surrounding nations alive. And then here is the Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, you will be over my house and all my people will pay homage to you. Only in relation to the throne will I be greater than you. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I appoint you over the whole land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments, and put a chain of gold around his neck. Then he had him ride in the chariot as second in command, the one that belonged to him. And they called out before him, kneel down. So he appointed him over the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one will lift up his hand or his foot in the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph that name <laughs> and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. Then Joseph went out in charge of the land of Egypt. Joseph is also the son of Jacob, whose other name, of course, is Israel. He is the first in the long line of the faithful among Israel who are raised up to the right hand of the king after many troubles and after choosing faithfulness to God. We also think of Daniel, raised up to the right hand of many kings in Babylon. Also, Mordecai and Esther are raised up to prominence at the right hand of the king of Persia, which we will celebrate in a few months. What do all these have in common? They're all faithful. They all serve God among the nations to be a blessing to both Jews and non-Jews. They are instrumental in rescuing Israel and the nations from death. And they are able to maintain their identity as Jews. For example, Daniel refuses the king's ration of food because it's not kosher. They all refuse to bow down to other gods, the gods of the nations where they are serving, including the foreign king or leader who would often set themselves up as a god. The most obvious similarity is that they are all children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their Jewish identity is instrumental in the narrative itself, including faithfulness to God and faithfulness to the Torah. They interact with the nations where they are exiled to bring blessing as Israel. And now in this season, we are finishing the festival of Hanukkah, focusing on the light of the world, Yeshua the Messiah. And we are nearing, should I say it, Christmas? When our brothers and sisters, represented by our recent speakers that we've had here, are celebrating the incarnation of God. Just like Esther, Mordecai, Daniel, and Joseph, the church is celebrating the rulership of another Jew. During the time of the second temple, a Jew was raised from the dead and raised to the right hand of the Father in heaven, equal to him in identity and authority just like our Torah portion implies about Joseph. So what does it mean that God came to be with us as a Jew? Well, that's another sermon. But Yeshua's Jewish identity matters, as do the non-Jewish identities in the Bible. For example, the identity of Ruth. She was from Moab, which is an, an enemy traditional enemy of Israel, her identity as a Moabite, as a non-Jew, it matters. 
And somehow she is grafted into the Jewish line, which leads to King David and to Yeshua himself. The Roman soldier, not a Jew, whose servant was healed by Yeshua, his non-Jewish identity matters. And Yeshua even remarks about that. He says, I haven't even found someone as faithful among the children of Israel as this man who trusted that just his word would heal his servant. Elizabeth, whose story I read earlier, her identity matters. We all have a need to belong. And if you are called here, if you are a member here, if this is your home, then you belong here. Yes, we want to reach our Jewish people. And yes, we want to affirm Jewish identity, but also we want to be welcoming to everyone. So there's a tension between these two things. We don't want to say that there's one law that everyone has to follow because that would erase Jewish identity. But we need to acknowledge that there are many parts of the Torah which apply to everyone, they do. My point is, this is not an easy place to be. I know I'm not selling it very well. If you're Jewish like me, it's not easy because a lot of people don't understand, including folks within our own families. If you're not Jewish, it's not easy because many don't understand including within our own families. It's redundant, but it's true, right? It's not easy being here either way. But this is because the process of unity is challenging, but it is valuable. So we look to the Joseph story, the Daniel story, the Ruth story, the Centurion story, the Esther story, the Yeshua story. These were marginalized figures. These were outsiders who were faithful as they were, Jew or Gentile. These folks knew rejection and they knew faithfulness. So let's be unified in our common vision to bridge and restore relationship between Yeshua, the Jewish people, and the nations. The thing about being a bridge, sometimes you're going to get walked on. That's what a bridge is, right? But it's okay. It's okay. We just have to encourage one another. We have to affirm one another in our identity and calling. Paul says in 1 Corinthians to remain in your calling, right? If you're Jewish, don't try to become un-Jewish and, and vice versa. So we can affirm that. And we can affirm one another and encourage one another, and we can pray for one another. Amen? You are valuable. You are important. And you are loved. We can work out the awkward tensions of Messianic Judaism together. Our love and commitment to relationship is the process that brings unity and blessing. Let me say that again. Our love and commitment to relationship is the process that brings unity and blessing. Our love and unity brings blessing to 
our own local fellowship here at Tikvat Israel and blessing within the church of the city and blessing within the Jewish community. So let's work it out together. Amen. Avinu, our Father, thank you for your presence this morning. We pray that you help us to work these things out um, as a community, um, that we would affirm one another, that we would hold these tensions, um, but hold them together, and that we would uh, defer to one another and prefer others to ourselves, that we would be humble, that we would be loving, and that we would be um, an example of unity, um, and that you would show us how we are part of the body of Messiah uh, in, in this city where you've planted us, and you would show us how we are a part of the Jewish community in the city where you've planted us. And yes, those things are difficult. It's hard to be part of both, but yet here we are and we say, Hineni, we say, here I am. And we say yes to your will, because this is a good process that you are bringing us through and we trust you. And in Yeshua's name we pray, amen.